This is the Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks, brought to you by the lucky number 193. Hello and welcome to a snowy, blustery episode of the Film File, because I don't know where you are, dear listeners, but here we've got snow. Yes, we're in the Arctic, I think. Um, it's, it's looking very white outside in my garden, and I've got to wonder about how to get to work later. Anyway, I'm Andy Beacon. I'm Lee Ford, and welcome to The Film File. Uh, I'm not going to start with the pleasantries. How are you? Because uh, I already know, and you already know how I'm feeling, which is not great. Uh, yes, got hit uh... by this winter sickness bug, which seems to be going around, and has knocked me for sick. So enjoy the edit, is all I can say. <laughs> Yes, Lee's a bit under the weather today and coughing and choking in the background whenever I talk. So this might be an episode that I end up talking significantly more than Lee. Yeah, and I just wheeze my way through. Every now and then he'll sputter in, I like it, yeah, yeah, great, and then go back off. <laughs> but I hope you feel well soon. I mean, yeah, it's just just hit me out completely out of you. I remember you having this this dreadful cold thing a few weeks back, and you were yeah coughing and spluttering, doing the same. It was a struggle. I'm hoping I don't get hit with it again because I've got a week off coming up in a few days and inevitably I fall ill during my week off, but I don't want to this time because I just want to watch films. I want to go to the cinema because during my week off, Wonka's out and also Godzilla Minus One will be releasing. I want to see them on the big screen. Yeah. Don't let me be ill. It, it's funny. I just had a week off, what was known as a well-being week off, and, and I, I was fine. Of course, straight first day back to work. Uh, and I'm coughing and spluttering. Yeah, Straight there you go. Illness. Yeah. Got a lot of reviews on the back burner. The, on the 1st of December alone, I watched five things in one day, as well wow. as working an eight-hour shift. That's, I mean, I've not been sleeping, but um, that's how dedicated I've been. Uh, so I'm going to be covering three reviews later in the show. But um, people who've been checking out the YouTube channel will notice I've been oh, sneakily inserting bonus reviews when I've been uploading like my reviews, I've always put in an additional one in over the past few weeks because I've got a backlog. And so I just thought, you know what? We'll give all the people who want to see me talking about films that little extra thing. Can't say the films are going to be good because I've watched a few festive films, but I'm trying to I'm trying to watch as much as I can, more than uh, usual. I'm glad to hear it because I've, I've seen very little. Most of my output has been in television because generally now with the... BBC stuff that I do, they ask me for TV stuff, so I'm having to keep mm. on on top of, of what's the new releases, and there's been some great new releases, yet to catch up as of this recording with Slow Horses Season 3, which has been my absolute favourite new series for the last couple of years. Mm. So, um, yes, I've got more TV stuff to talk about. Talking of TV stuff, did you watch Doctor Who, the second episode? Yes, uh, I got, got home just in time sitting and watching it with the family this time because last week I was working all night this time I, I, I got home literally just as they started it was like well you can rewind it five minutes and we're starting it again um, a very low key episode this is one of those episodes that could have been just filmed in a one room set as a play of the day kind of thing like a classic doctor traditionally it would have been but didn't it look great yes you can see that that Disney money even though even though as you said it was was basically couple of interiors all the way story. through. The ship design in particular, I love that whole design. But it, Catherine Tate did great slightly, um, as she tends to do and as I'm expecting. But Tennant is just magnificent in the role again. He's just It's like he's never been gone, has he? 
It's it's just so enjoyable. It, this is a great way to celebrate, you know, all the years of Doctor Who because we've had an episode that controversially adapted a comic book story and wrote that out of out of history completely, basically. But then this week they did what is effectively a traditional Doctor Who story. So yeah. next week looks like it's going to be like a modern Doctor Who like action extravaganza. And that's the way to celebrate it. You're delving into the different aspects that Doctor Who's been over yes. the decades. They're doing a really good job. I'm I'm going to miss David Tennant once again once he moves on. But I'm looking forward to seeing what Shooty Gatwell brings to the role next year. Is next week's the last one of the specials then? Is there only three specials? Yes, but, but there is a Christmas Day special as well, I believe. And that's going to be with the new Doctor, isn't it? Yes, it's going to be a, a it's going to be a sad farewell to David Tennant once more after next week. It just shows how much he's loved, really. He's not my favourite Doctor. Tom Baker will always be my favourite Doctor, but I think he's definitely my, my second favourite. Yes, it's just how can you not not like David Tennant, even when he was in Jessica Jones as the villain, yeah. he was so likable. Yeah, just oozes charisma. Yeah, but yeah, see, I'm, I'm I'm enjoying this re- resurgence of Doctor Who, and I'm enjoying that it's winding up so many. So many members of the toxic fan community out there. I'm loving that they're hating how woke Doctor Who is because they've never realised that Doctor Who has always been woke. Yes. I don't remember having these conversations sort of 15 years ago because nothing's really changed that much. Good sci-fi should always touch on social issues of the time in which it's released. And this is what has made Doctor Who last six decades because it's always touched on social themes of the time that it's made. And so it's always going to be woke and it ain't going to change deal with it so last week in our social challenge we set the questions we build up towards this festive time of the year so that gives us basically i think after this one we got three more shows before christmas three more sleeps mm-hmm. till christmas which sounds like a, oh. a song from a muppet's christmas carol <laughs> which yes i've already downloaded the album and listening to it in the car of course you are great <laughs> however you're so much more festive than I am. I mean, I'm yeah. the one wearing the festive sweater at the moment, but you're the one who's more festive than I am mentally. <laughs> I have the bright red nose. I don't know if that counts. I mean, I've described It's a Wonderful Life, which is my favourite festive film of all time, to someone on email today. as What represents Christmas more than someone wanting to commit suicide through money worries? <laughs> that shows what my mentality is at this time of year. <laughs> but anyway, we had a question of the week last week, didn't we? Which was... On the build-up to Christmas, what is your traditional viewing? However, not a particular Christmas film, but stuff you have a tendency to watch this time of year. So I said The Beatles' uh, Hard Day's Night is one of those festive films for me because when I was a kid, you'd always get The Beatles movies on at Christmas time. So I always associate that with Christmas. And you said Back to the Future. Back to the Future. It's Christmas Day watch every year. It's got absolutely nothing to do with Christmas, but it it just feels Christmas to me. I think it's the family aspect. Yes, it's that thing. It's that that, thing you associate. That's what Christmas is to me. But we put the question out there for all of you lovely listeners out there. We had some bites. We had some decent bites. Over on Mastodon, uh, Sarah Samis said going postal, the adaptation of the Pratchett. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Which uh, I believe that was aired on Sky around about Christmas. So that'll be one that like kind of resonates because you, it came out around about that point. But I can yeah. also see it with the themes in there as well. Heidi Monksgaard, the Lord of the Rings trilogy extended edition. There is wow. just no Christmas without watching them with my now 16-year-old son. Been watching them since before he could even read or understand English. It says that she's Danish. And the Space Odyssey 2001. 
um, is another film that they associate with Christmas. Um, Lord of the Rings Extended Edition. I mean, you have to watch the Extended Edition, and it has to be all three at the same time. Whenever I rewatch the Lord of the Rings films, I canon them in one day. So I can kind of get how you can spend a whole day watching them. But 2001 is a very strange, very yeah, strange Yeah, what an interesting choice. I'd love to know the story behind that. Let us know. Let us know, please. Nick Fedrickson. I watch all 12 Star Wars films, including Solo and Rogue One. I've been doing that for years now. And they might add Clone Wars into the mix for good measure. You're a braver man than I am, Nick. Absolutely a braver man than I am. That's, that's basically Whoa. three days worth of viewing if you're watching them all the way through. I revisited all the Star Wars films during lockdown and went back to the prequels, et cetera, et cetera. And I've come to the conclusion after rewatching them through that run that I'm only ever going to rewatch three Star Wars films from this point onwards because there's there's not a lot of good out there. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. It's just that a lot of it is very mediocre. And a good fan should be able to recognise when it's gone wrong. Anyway, Salty Red. Not heard from Salty Red on the answers for a while, which he did comment a few weeks ago that he, he can never he struggled a few times to get the answers and just ended up not sending them. But this time, he's got quite a few. Welcome back, Salty Red. Oliver is one. Okay, get that. Kitty Chitty Bang Bang is another. Mary Poppins. Anchors Away. What a film. Oh, yeah, of course. There always used to be a musical on, didn't there? There always was yeah. a sort of Christmas musical as a kid. I get all of those because those were sort of traditional Radio Times circling movies. Yeah. yeah, he's added in that this is all due to the way that these are the things that would start to fill up the schedules at odd times yeah. on the BBC channels during the festive holiday season when he was a kid which is how he also found love for Charlie Chaplin, Abbott and Costello before seeing yeah. more from Keaton and Laurel and Hardy. I think a lot of people's traditional festive viewing, which isn't festive films, will all be because BBC forced these things on us when yes. we were young. We'll see that theme through a lot of things. Uh, over on Blue Sky, Lizzie Beth said the Philadelphia story. Not, Good choice. not such why it's a festive watch for me. Um, I replied that at least it wasn't the Philadelphia experiment, which would just be weird. <laughs> <laughs> Over on X Twitter, JJ Barton, we had another person with the Lord of the Rings extended edition entire trilogy. And Harvey Morton, hi Harvey, said Saving Mr. Banks, Mary Poppins, Little Women, Good one. Phantom Thread, and The Sound of Music. Yeah, The Sound of Music. I, the more that I think about it, yes. that is one that always seems to sit with me for a Christmas watch. It's not a film that I like. I, I know you're not supposed to say that, but it's not a film that I actually like. Yeah, you're not allowed to say that. I'll take you out, Lord. You're banned from the show. <laughs> <laughs> Sit in the corner, remain quiet for the rest of the show. Over through the Spotify answers, uh, Ben replied with, technically it's a Christmas movie, but highly doubts that people will be watching this to get in the festive move. Eyes wide shut. Full of insecurity, cultism and conspiracy. The perfect Christmas. <laughs> 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 I got the feeling Ben will appreciate my description of It's a Wonderful Life looking at the description of Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Not ben, one to share with Grandma. <laughs> Over on the Facebook, uh, a few from family and friends came through. So Janet Melling always watches Die Hard on Christmas Eve, despite the ongoing Is It a Christmas Movie or Isn't It? We've done this two years on the run. We don't have to have this argument again this year. If you think that it's a Christmas movie, that's fine. If you think it's not a Christmas movie, it's fine. That's we don't fine need well. to debate it any further. Uh, Lee Leary, Batman Returns. Yep. Yep, yep see that. Yep, Snow. Christmas and Eve, also Lethal Weapon. That. Yeah, yeah. Chris, uh, most most things written by Shane Black are based around Christmas, including Iron <laughs> Man 3. And if you've ever wondered why I have an aversion to Christmas movies, thank you, Patricia Meakin. 
anything that is non-Christmas related. <laughs> you there can you see that it's I've in inherited. Yeah, I've I've inherited my like sneering at like the schmaltzy nonsense of festive films. Aside from the handful, because it's my mum who also loves It's a Wonderful Life. So I am my mum's child, no doubt about it. Over on the Film File page on Facebook, Lindsay Story, who Lindsay would like to also say hi to you, Lee. Uh, saw her at the quiz this week. She says that it'd be great if you could pop in for the quiz one time so she could get to meet you. I will, I promise. But she put films like Back to the Future, E.T., Goonies, Indiana Jones, Never Ending Story, and the ones that always remind her of Christmas because they're normally on TV around Christmas. Another one is Wizard of Oz. In fact, she thinks she's only ever watched that film at Christmas. And Wizard of Oz is certainly one that's on my list. Of, course, of yeah. th- Films that feel like they should be about Christmas, even yes. though it's got nothing to do with it. Helen Blair threw in Sound of Music, which would be another one similar to Wizard of Oz, as she remembers that always being on TV over Christmas. And Owen Cooper. E.T. always reminds him of Christmas. Watched it for the first time when he was really young around Christmas. Oddly enough, War for the Planet of the Apes reminds him of, reminds him of Christmas, even okay. though it's depressing and whatnot. Remembers getting the Blu-ray around Christmas and sat watching it after being snowed in. And Disney and Pixar films definitely remind them of Christmas too. Another one for me, Superman the Movie. Yeah. Because it came out it came out at Christmas. Yeah. I, I kind of gravitate towards that later in the year, around about your May time. But I can see why it can end up being... Um, a Christmas one, because, like you say, when it released. Uh, for my ones, I mean, Back to the Future's been referenced. I mentioned it last week, and it's been mentioned by a few other people. Um, Harryhausen classics like Sinbad or Clash of the Titans, again, because they were always on on Boxing Day. Yeah, a great one, then, would be Jason and the Argonauts. Oh, yeah. Jason and the Argonauts, the Talos, the huge, uh, huge statue. That was always a Christmas favourite. Yes. I know from talking to people at work this week that the Harry Potter films are considered by many people to be festive. I get that. Again, the first few in particular were released in November, so they carried over the Christmas period. And one for me that came to me last minute today, and there's a film next week that is linked to it, and that's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Okay. It's funny, I always associate that with Easter. It's always felt like a Christmas film to me. It's probably the same with a lot of people, which is why they've planned Wonka to come out for the festive period. Yeah, I understand it. Yeah, I would say it's always Easter. Well, the original Gene Wilder version, yeah. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, was always an association with, with Easter. So some good suggestions there. Brilliant. Great list of alternate films that aren't necessarily about Christmas that you could maybe watch over this festive season rather than doing what I'm doing and agreeing to watch films for deep dives that I don't particularly have an interest in. <laughs> <laughs> And also hello to uh, some of our new contributors. Stick around. So as I look out of the window right now, there's a, a snowy backdrop uh, to to where I live, and I'm pretty much guessing the same for you, Andy. Yes. So that helps us generate this week's question. What about snow? Films that have snow. Again, not necessarily a Christmas film. You see, a, a good horror movie set in snow for me is a winner. I am absolutely bored if there's a horror movie set in snow. But snowbound movies that instantly come to mind when you think of snow. Does it have to be a Christmas film? Maybe not. Looking at you, John Carpenter's the thing. Let us know via all our socials. And you can do that by heading over to social media channels, search for Film File UK. You should be able to find us on most channels. And uh, keep a lookout for the question going out during the week. Reply to it on there. If you want to get in touch with us directly, 
podcast at filmfile.uk. Send your answers over via there. Or if you're listening on Spotify, it should be in the show description. should be a question down there. You can answer via Spotify and uh, be added be added to the show and also be added on Spotify. Your answer will pop up for other people to see. Excellent. Let's talk about this week's show. What have we got for you this week? Well, we've got reviews of... Eileen, that landed at cinemas this past week. Wrath of Becky, that is available to rent on streaming services at this point in time. And Candy Cane Lane. Yes, I said I wasn't going to watch it. I know I said it held no interest to me. But did I find myself pleasantly surprised by it? Find out later in the show. We've got a deep dive into a film that always makes my Christmas watching list. Did Andy like it? We're going to be talking about Bob Clark's A Christmas Story. Before that, we've got the news and we've got the box office. So those box office figures, we had Wish last week, which wasn't doing the business. Wished it was doing better. I think Disney were hoping it would. So how does this week play out? So in the US this weekend, Beyonce hits the top spot. Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, taking 21 million on its opening three days. Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes drops to second place, taking 14.5 million this weekend. Godzilla Minus One is in third place. Just over 11 million it takes in its opening weekend. Trolls Band Together still holding into the top five, taking another 7.6 million. And Wish just about staying in the top five with 7.41 million. The Marvels has plummeted out of the top 10, taking 11th place in the US this weekend. Another 2.5 million added onto its total. Worldwide, it's just about to scrape past 200 million and showing significant signs of slowing down. Here in the UK, Napoleon holds onto the top spot, taking 1.9 million this weekend. The Hunger Games Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is in second place with just under 1.7 million taken this weekend. Wish is in third place with 1.4 million. Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, takes just over a million to get into fourth place. And Andre Ryu takes fifth place with just over a million himself with his White Christmas concert. The Marvels in the UK has plummeted to ninth place. It'll be dropping out of the top 10 pretty much next week. Beyonce's film worldwide has taken 27.4 million so far. Hunger Games is up to 243.9 million, which is a significant success for a 100 million budgeted film. Wish is pretty much flattening out. It's taken 81 million so far to date. It might push past 100 million before the end of its run, but it is going to be a particularly underperforming entry in Disney's 100 years of animations. So Beyonce's movie has basically taken the box office this weekend on what is very much a quiet weekend. It's post-Thanksgiving for the US, so all the business was last weekend. It always drops off on this week. And whilst it had like a strong, the strongest opening since The Last Samurai in America um, for this week, early December weekend opening, which was way back in 2003, it's worth noting that taking around 24 million on the opening weekend when only a month and a half ago, Taylor Swift managed to do 92.8 million. Shows that it's not really that huge hit that Taylor was. But it's good for a concert movie and it's got its audience. Whether it'll hold over next week, we don't know, but there's a lot more content coming over the coming weeks. So we're going to see a lot of shuffling of the box office over the next three weeks, I reckon. Interesting about Beyonce though, especially on the follow-up to Taylor Swift's concert movie, that they're just two very, very different audiences, aren't they? Yeah. Taylor manages to 
Tay-Tay manages to appeal to a wider array He's of so age ranges. The, you know, the young audience love her, but you've got some people who've been fans of her since she started off who are now like, you know, they're, they're in their 30s uh, and, and they're still loving her. Whereas Beyonce just seems to, her fan base has aged alongside her and she has no appeal to the younger audience. And so unless you're between the ages of 35 and 45, you probably don't give a care about her. Okay, so that's the box office. Let's take a look at this week's news. Um, shall we start off with Marvel-related news? Shall we? First of all, Loki creator and showrunner and Doctor Strange writer Michael Waldron has now been set as the new writer for the Kang Dynasty, the Avengers team-up movie. Waldron was already set to write the sixth Avengers film, which is Secret Wars. But he's now got to pen both that and this upcoming fifth one. Both of the stories are expected to be deeply interconnected. So the hiring doesn't particularly come as a huge surprise. It does replace Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania's writer Jeff Loveness, who was previously attached to Kang. And it comes in the wake of director Destin Daniel Cretton's departure from the film. I reckon there's a bit of a story reshuffle going on behind the scenes. And I think that they're possibly yeah, starting to work like that, out whether this is going to be the film that will write out Kang. It'll be to write out Kang and introduce the new big bad, possibly, because a certain court case, I believe, starts up this week. So we should start finding out whether or not Kang's going to have a future. Waldron has now become one of Marvel's most trusted creative minds, and he's been given time to develop the films. Kang Dynasty is not due until May the 1st, 2026, and Secret Wars is not out until May the 7th, 2027. So he's got a, enough planning phase to be able to hopefully craft something that will bring audiences back because that's what marvel need right now they need audiences yeah. to feel like they need to see their films again because at the moment most people are going yeah i'll happily wait until it's on streaming uh, questions still remain about how marvel are going to handle the jonathan major situation we'll probably find that out in the new year as to whether or not the whole kang storyline is going to end up getting dropped or just slowly woven out it'd be a shame because i think he's been marvelous in the various alternate versions of kang but it is all down to it was all down to the negativity that could emanate from that court case. On to Marvel Pinch of Salt time. Okay, Pinch of Salt corner, open that door. Need to say that Pinch of Salt is huge in this one because some of the names of the scoopers are Daniel RPK and My Time to Shine Hello, who are throw everything at the wall and one thing might stick. But anyway, first of all, Chris Evans has shot down one of the rumours that was going around a few weeks back. The rumour that had suggested that he, Robert Downey Jr. and Scarlett Johansson were going, going to be reuniting on screen for the upcoming Avengers films. He appeared on The View this past week and was asked about this return and laughed and said, you know, I always see those reports too and it's news to me. I think every couple of months someone says that they're getting Downey and Hemsworth and Scarlett Johansson and everyone's coming back. No one's spoken to any of us about it. And look, I'd never say never, but really, I'm very protective. It's precious role to me, so it'd have to be just right. So if anyone's been convincing you that they're definitely coming back for the Avengers Secret Wars film, don't bet on it. I mean, how much will it cost for a start? And can they afford that money? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know what? It'd make that money. It would make that money back. It would. It would. But it feels like a desperate attempt to try and win viewers as opposed to an organic attempt. Uh, John Hamm is very keen to be a part of Marvel. Apparently, he was initially rumoured to be appearing in The New Mutants as Mr. Sinister, but that didn't happen because we never got a sequel to The New Mutants. He's spoken to Screen Rant recently and said he's quite keen to be a part of the MCU. In his words, I'd love to. I've been a fan of Marvel Comics and comics in general since I was probably in single digits. There are tons of stories I'm familiar with, at least, that are still out there to be told. Hopefully, whatever their plans are, they include me. I hope I get a chance. Who knows? 
hire John Hamm right now. Get him in a Marvel film. That'll bring some audience in. It'll bring me in multiple times. I'll pay for it. I don't normally see things for free. I'll pay to see John Hamm. And on the rumour mill, my time to shine. Hello, and Daniel RPK have suggested films that are currently in development at Marvel Studios, including the new Eternals film, another Doctor Strange film, Black Panther, another Thor sequel, along with new seasons of Moon Knight, She-Hulk, and Ms. Marvel, and that Killian Murphy is now the latest name to be added to the rumour mill for Doctor Doom and is expected to be a cameo in Fantastic Four. Take all of that bit with a huge grain of salt because every one of those films and TV shows that they're saying are being greenlit for second seasons or more movies are the underperforming ones. And I think they're just throwing whatever they can out there so they can turn around when one of them inevitably goes through and go, look, we were the only ones who believed in this. Nonsense salt corner. (laughs) I'm going to take us out of Pinch of Salt Corner now into a world of reality because Beetlejuice 2 has officially wrapped production. Uh, yes. Tim Burton shared first behind uh, his first behind the scenes look at the movie, and we've been talking about this for since I think we started this 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 podcast, and how much we're looking forward to it. And it's great to have Michael Keaton back in the role that I think really broke him broke him out from being just doing comedy stuff and showing this darker side of it. And of course, it yeah. was the role that led him playing Batman. Yep. Beetlejuice was famously one of the films that had to shut down production uh, when the actor strike kicked off and only had two days of shooting left to do at the time that they had to shut it down. So (laughs) it's basically had an extended three and a half month hiatus just to come back and film for two days. So it was it was going to be one of the first ones out the gate and the first ones finished. Looking forward to seeing it. They always said whenever they were asked over the decades, would they make a Beetlejuice 2? It was always like, if we can get it right, if it looks like it will work. That gave me confidence to believe that maybe they've got it right. It's the same way as the Ghostbusters um, Afterlife. We waited multiple decades for that, but it it felt like we got the film that we deserved at the end of it. We got a really like family-led, heartfelt film that paid tribute to the originals. And I can't wait for the next Ghostbusters. We said earlier this year that James Cameron's teased that he would still like to do sequels to Alita Battle Angel. The original film was the amnesiac cyborg discovers her past life as a battle droid and tries to fit that into who her identity is. Uh, But the budget that it cost and how much it didn't make at the box office kind of stymied plans. But speaking with Screen Rants this week, uh, producer John Lando uh, was asked if the sequel was still in talks with him, Cameron and director Robert Rodriguez. And apparently Lando's enthusiasm hasn't dampened in the slightest. Um, In his words, yes, I just answered that I knew that before you even got here. I'm very proud of that film and we were doing it concurrently with Avatar. I was down with Robert on the set doing all that and Jim was involved and saw it too. Came on HBO one night, Jim watched it and called me after he watched it and said, John, Alita was just on, I've just decided to watch it. It's a good movie and it is. I want to be able to definitely do more in that world. Now, whilst there's nothing greenlit, it is interesting to know that they're all still quite passionate about it and surely... Cameron's got some spare pocket change after Avatar blew the box office apart last year. So don't rule out another Elita movie. He could probably fund it himself, to be honest. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if he does, because he does really have a passion for the project. Whether he'll fund it to the same kind of budget as what the first one had, remains to be seen. And for a number two that I didn't know was going to be on its way. Please tell me. This made me, this made me very excited. Rob Reiner... Is following oh, up yes. his 1984 cult classic, This Is Spinal Tap, by returning and reuniting the mock band again for a whole new film, which is going to start shooting in February. Yes. 
I did see this over the week, and apparently, I'm sure we've talked about it when it was in the gestation period, and the idea being that the band are under contract after having split up to do um, a, either a final album or a final tour. One would imagine a final tour. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's Spinal Tap, a film that I've seen numerous, countless times, uh, and will be there on day one to watch it. Oh, can't wait. So, yeah, it's uh, the story is that after the manager, Ian Faith, passed away, Ian's widow finds the contract that says that Spinal Tap owed him one more concert and she will sue them unless they get back together to do this final concert. And so a band that hasn't seen each other for multiple decades are suddenly forced back together to try to relive the magic. I'm there. I am so there. I'm glad that Rob Reiner's back on board. I'm glad that it's going to have that full feel of it. I was not expecting that to go into production. Uh, sticking with the sequels, it's now been officially announced, and we did mention it a couple of weeks ago, that a Black Phone sequel is going to happen, and Ethan Hawke will return as the grabber. So I'm guessing then this will be some kind of a prequel. Yeah, um, yeah. Ethan Hawke, Mason Thames, Madeline McGraw, Jeremy Davis, and Miguel Mora are all set to return for it. So it's bringing everyone back together. And the teaming of Scott Derrickson and his co-writer, C. Robert Cargill, are back on board to make sure the creative direction is going in the same way. The first film saw Mason Thames playing a young teenager who was abducted by the masked child killer, the Grabber, in a suburban neighbourhood. And he was locked in a soundproof basement and gets calls from a disconnected phone that seem to be coming from his victims. It's a cracking film. If you've not seen Black Phone, It's available on streaming services somewhere. It's well worth watching. It was one of the highlights of horror of the recent years. And um, I'm interested to see what they can do with either a sequel or a prequel, depending on what this ends up being. In addition with horror, out promoting Hunger Games' Ballad of Songbird and Snakes, filmmaker Francis Lawrence has confirmed that he's attached to the long gestating adaptation of Stephen King's novel, The Long Walk. Okay. He spoke with Insider this week. He said no details on how far it's progressed, but he made it clear it's just one of several projects he has in the works at the moment. He's got a Constantine sequel in the works, an I Am Legend sequel, Bioshock movie on the way. For those who don't know what The Long Walk is, it's one of the books that was written under the pseudonym Richard Bachman, set in a dystopian America in which 100 teens participate in an annual non-stop walking contest until only one of them is still alive and receives a prize. The story will follow 16-year-old Walker named Raymond Garrity and the teens, some good, some bad and some mysterious, who gravitate around his orbit through his walk. This has been reported for the past few years. I mean, it's it's way back in 2018 when James Vanderbilt, who wrote White House Down and The Maze of Spider-Man, was on board to write. Hopefully we'll start to see some momentum on this going forward. It's a great story, The Long Walk. Yeah, it's been years since I've read it. As you were describing it then, it all came flooding back because when I saw this announced, it was one of those books that I couldn't remember. But now you've, you've gone mm-hmm. through the plot. Yes, I have read it. I had a collected work of all the Backman books and it was in that. Lots of things have restarted production. Uh, The Sandman has resumed production. You know what? It's 30 years since the first issue of Neil Gaiman's comic series was released. And Alien Romulus, which is the Fede Alvarez Aliens movie, will take place between Alien and Aliens. But bigger news in the Alien world is the great Timothy Oliphant has joined the FX series, which is now again underway because they had a deal because they were shooting abroad for portion of the uh, portion of the series so it wasn't affected by the actor strike but now they've resumed i'm guessing with the american cast now 
Um, good to see Timothy Oliphant on board. Yeah, I love Timothy Oliphant. And there's been a really good reception to the news that he's going to be involved as well, because he is one of those beloved actors who he always has that leading man kind of presence, but he, he very rarely plays the leading man, but offers some fantastic support, whether he's playing a good guy, a bad guy, comical roles, horror roles. He can do anything. Yeah, we don't know the details about what his character is going to be in the Alien TV series. He's expected to play the major role of a synthetic named Kirsch, who acts as a mentor, but it's not confirmed. He joins the cast that includes Alex Lawther as a soldier named CJ, Samuel Blenkin as a CEO named Boy Cavalier, Essie Davis as Dame Sylvia, Ardash Gorav as Slightly, and Kit Young as Tootles. And it takes place roughly 70 years in the future, which is going to be decades before the events of the original 1979 Alien film, and round about the same time that the events of Prometheus are taking place. Um, it marks the first story in the franchise that takes place primarily on earth i'm excited for all that we're getting alien we're getting the alien tv yeah. series from noah hawley Ooh, and alien it. romulus is is ramp, ramping along quite nicely uh with actress kaylee spaney um appeared at the goffman awards and spoke about her work on fedi alvarez's new alien romulus film this week not a lot is known about the story of the movie and it's completely separate from hawley's alien effects series but what Spaney has revealed is that Romulus is unfolding in the near six-decade gap between Alien and Aliens. So, again, we've got a different time structure, time juncture. Uh, it's the time when Ripley was adrift in cryosleep. So don't expect any appearances from Ripley in this film. In her words, it's supposed to slot in between the first movie and the second movie. They brought the same team from Aliens, the James Cameron film. The same people who built those xenomorphs actually came on and built ours. So getting close to the original designs with the original people who've been working on these films for 45 plus years. It basically means that we've got, we're going to have two different time periods of Alien fleshed out with a lot more intricate detail. One of them, which will hopefully explain the origins of this Xeno species a bit more than what Prometheus did. And the other one, which will be set in that. Well, that period between Alien and Aliens, where the corporation was clearly up to some no good in order to manipulate events that would lead to uh, the decimation of the colony on LV-426. Now, here's a reboot that no one saw coming or even asked for, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> a, a Jason Bourne sequel is in early developments with All Quiet on the Western Front director, Edward Berger, attached. Do we need a sequel to uh, Bourne? Because the last one, Jason Bourne, didn't really do the business. No. And it felt at that point that the franchise had grown tired, or is it a complete reboot and starting the story again, which makes me think, is it too soon? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced on that one. I'm not a huge Jason Bourne fan. Bourne Identity I had some love for, but whilst the story got better on the following films, the camera work got annoyingly worse. Yeah, the shaky cam. And by the time it got to like the end of the third film and then they're spinning off to do like uh, the, the Bourne legacy and stuff like that. It felt like it had been done. It felt like there was nothing there anymore. And Bond had come back by that point and gone, well, this is how you really do it, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Even when Bond was bad on Quantum of Solace, it still felt better than the latter Bourne films to me. I'm not sold, but I hope to be proven proven wrong. Yeah, we always want to be proven wrong. Uh, I'm not going to lambast it. I'm just going to say I don't I don't see why they're tapping that well again. Particularly, like you say, the last out outing didn't really do well financially. So it's not a well that seems like it's got much more to give, to be honest with you. Speaking of wells that uh, might not have much more to give, if they keep spinning off more things from the boys, at some point they're going to grow tired. Because mm -hmm. now we've got another live-action spin-off oh, entitled really? The Boys Mexico, which already has some major names attached. 
I mean, the names are good. We've got Diego Luna and Gael Garcia Bernal, who uh, you might remember paired up together in the marvellous film E2 Mama Tambien. Oh, marvellous film. They're making deals to executive producing and also considering taking on support roles within it. Blue Beetle writer Gareth Dunatalkoka is spearheading the project as creator, writer and executive producer. And a search is currently underway for a co-showrunner to join him. It's going to be a Spanish language series shot in Mexico, set in Mexico City, with budgets currently being worked out. No main casting has been done yet, but obviously producers Eric Kripke, Seth Rogen, etc. are all on board to keep it the direction and it close to the boys as it is. But, I mean, I know that some people out there are love, have loved Gen V. Yeah, not I've, not got, not you and I've I. not got past the second episode. And I, had I, just, to, I had to those when I had to finish it. You know what I mean? It's one of those you start, so you think, I've, I've got to complete it. But yeah. there were other things in front of it which would always take priority. Um, yeah, we know we've got the fourth season of The Boys. The teaser trailer got released this week. And there's been the animated anthology spin-off, The Boys Presents Diabolical. Let's just do a quick roundup of some quickie news. So another photo arrived from Eggers' new Nosferatu movie this week. Uh, showcasing Nicholas Holt as Jonathan Harker, and he looks great. Uh, well, with the blurry Bill Skarsgård as Count Orlock in the foreground. And this new uh, new reimagining of F.W. Morneau's 1922 silent classic film now has a December the 25th, 2024 oh, release date. Perfect Christmas present. Nothing says Christmas more than an aging vampire trying to kill you. Yeah. Twilight director Catherine Hardwick says that actors Jenna Ortega from Wednesday and Jacob Elordi from Euphoria would be perfect to play Bella Swan and Edward Cullen, respectively, if they were recasting Twilight for today. Why she's saying that, nobody knows. Is the plans to adapt a TV series of Twilight? I wouldn't be surprised, given that they're also at the currently working on plans to adapt the Harry Potter franchise to TV. I think they're going to start tapping this well of remaking things that have already been adapted once. Yeah, and doing it in the format of a TV show where they can spend time on each book and, and knowing what TV audiences are like now. Yeah, TV might work better for some of these things. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much it for the news, aside from a handful of trailers that landed this week that caught my eye and your eye. So the big one, I'm sure we're going to be on the same boat as this one, the Fury of the trailer, which brings yes. Anna Taylor-Joy to George Miller's Mad Max saga landed this week. Yes, it looks extremely Fury Road. Yes. It's got the same the same orange glow aesthetic to it. It's going to tell the origin story of Furiosa, but also the origin story of the Morton Joe, because you've got Chris Hemsworth in there without the mask, but then there's shots of him with the Morton Joe mask later on. You've got the people on poles swinging down. You've got the Oh, it's everything that Fury Road was, given a bit more meat to it. And I cannot wait. The Visually, it just looks superb again. And that's what's so great about the Mad Max films is that, you know, you look at the older films now and you go, oh, it's a bit dated. But at the time, they were visually superb for what I they were presenting. watch Road Warrior yes. time and time again. Oh, Because it's practical. Everything about it is there's those practical effects and that look to it just makes it feel timeless. There's only really the very first Mad Max film, which, which looks dated, and that's there's, there's enough reasons to to acknowledge that. Yeah, but yeah, Furiosa, if you're not seeing that trailer, find the bigger screen that you've got and watch that trailer on that big screen because it, it deserves it. It looks 
beautiful and you can throw Anya Taylor-Joy into any film and it will always spark my interest even more. She's just amazing. She is amazing in everything that she does. Trailer that caught my eye early this week that I was surprised with because the first film I enjoyed, the second film not so much because it felt like a load of Family Guy scripts had fallen on the floor and random pages had been picked up. But the TED TV series actually looks uh, okay. I didn't bother. I didn't bother looking at it. I was never a fan of TED. It's uh, it, it's basically going back to when they were teenagers and, uh, you know, going through that growing up phase while you've got a talking teddy bear following you around. And okay. I, I'd be lying if I said that I was I was chuckling throughout the trailer. So I'm, I'm in for checking out the series when it lands. There's a monster in the swimming pool in the new Bloomhouse horror, and we saw the trailer for it, and that was Night Swim landed this week yep i mean we've spoken about how blumhouse have been missing more than hitting in recent years i'm hoping this is going to be something that will get them back to hitting again um, if not we've always got a24 to mop up give us what we really want from horror and the series fallout had its first trailer released yesterday which i've not seen because i'm not a fan of fallout so well, i'm not a fan because i've not played it it's, there's no reason for me to dislike it i've just never played fallout so did it match expectations? Um, it definitely captures the game look and aesthetic really well. I think it's worth you checking out this trailer because Fallout's concept is one of them that you don't need to have played the games to get the whole concept of like a post-apocalyptic world that people were locked underground in vaults and then had come back out to find this world filled with devastation post-apocalyptic mutants mankind has resorted back to like basically raiding parties it's everything that is pulp sci-fi of post-apocalyptic nature is all fallout and it's also got a very wry sense of humor that flows through the games that is conveyed well looking at this trailer over to the live action version it looks great as well um amazon are releasing that i believe april or may next year so um that's one that's definitely on my radar now. I will more than likely be in. You've just described something that I like, a good post-apocalyptic yeah. TV series or movie. It kind of makes me think, is that what life's going to be like after a Trump presidency, if he gets back in? <laughs> we'll, we'll just wait and see. And that, folks, that's the news. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks with myself, Lee Ford and Andy Meekin. And if you're enjoying the show and you haven't subscribed, or if you have subscribed, and you've not told that geek in your life that we exist, then please do so. To subscribe, all you have to do is head over to your favorite podcast platform, hit the subscription button, and remember to leave a review and a like. All that sort of stuff helps us with our optics and helps build the show. And you know you want to build the show. The perfect Christmas present for Andy and I, other than maybe a Ferrari or a PlayStation 5, if you've not got enough for a Ferrari, is to help build the film file. And you can get in touch with us via any of these outlets. Social media channels, Film File UK is what you're looking for. You should find us on there. Drop us a message. Drop us your thoughts on films. Send us a direct email, podcast at filmfile.uk. Always happy to hear your opinions, thoughts, and particularly what films have struck you over this past year and what you're looking forward to next year. Or make a paper airplane and throw it in our general direction. It might get here. You never know. Put it in a postbox with a letter as a letter to Santa, but just put via the film file. It'll divert to us, and we'll get to see what Santa's like going to be bringing you for Christmas as well. You know, just do all this. Just get in touch with us. We love to hear from you. And now it's time 
for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. So several years ago, this film was suggested to me as a film that I should watch at Christmas and I would love it because, well, that kid is kind of me. And therefore, I was introduced to this 1983 American Christmas comedy film directed by Bob Clark, based on Gene Shepard's semi-fictional anecdotes in his 1966 book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And that is the truly delightful A Christmas Story. Ah, there it is, my house. How could I ever forget it? That star is crooked. Christmas was on its way. Ralphie, what would you like for Christmas? I want an official Red Rider carbon action two inch airwings while air rifle. No, shoot your eye out. Oh no. Come on, Mom, we're gonna be late. I triple dog dare you. What I want for Christmas. Aha! A little bribe never hurts. A lamp! Oh, wow! When all is most right with the world. Oh, you should see what it looks like from out here. The most unthinkable disasters descend upon us. <laughs> Scott Farkas. You give me that look, you're gonna get it! Ho, ho, ho! How about a football? No! No, no, I want an official red under carbonation. Do you want to get rid of my light rifle? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Directed by Bob Clark, one of those directors who would basically direct every kind of genre at some point through his career. The film stars Melinda Dillon, Darren McGavin, and Peter Billingsley as Ralphie Parker, a nine-year-old boy in 1940. And as that magical time, that build-up to Christmas comes, Ralphie wants one thing for Christmas, a Red Rider carbine action, 200-shot range model air rifle. Ralphie's desires are basically stifled by his mother, who basically says to him, you'll shoot your eye out. This film is a series of vignettes narrated by the adult Ralphie that leads through to Christmas morning. And why do I love this film? Because I was Ralphie. In fact, we've all been Ralphie at some part of our lives, around that magical time when you would turn up at your favourite department store to look in the window at the new arrivals of all the stuff you would want for Christmas. Ralphie's not the smartest kid. Neither is the dumbest. He's kind of an, an average kid, but he's so damn likable. And I see myself, when we talked about this the other week, where do you see yourself? I see myself as Ralphie. I used to go to, and if you're from Sheffield, you may remember this, the huge toy store called Red Gates. In that build-up to Christmas, it was just magical where you would start to put your Christmas list together and count down the days, hoping that Father Christmas would bring you that particular gift. I've been going on about this film for ages, and now I've passed it on to Andy, and the moment of truth is, Andy, did it bring out any Christmas nostalgia for you, or was it just a turkey? It's neither. I mean, I've said on previous years when we've done our festive things that I'm not a very festive person when it comes to films. 
because I, I find that too many festive films are overly schmaltzy. And hence, I end up giving away festive films to the losing teams at the quizzes every November when we do our like last one of the year as a joke, because I don't particularly like films like Elf. I don't like Love Actually. I don't like Home Alone. Out of, out of those three, I'll agree, with, I'll agree with two of those. Over the years, I've been aware of this film, but I've always avoided it because the clips that I've seen have made my teeth start to chatter um, in, in slight ire and frustration, thinking it's just going to be schmaltz. Now, I didn't enjoy it. I'll, I'll say that off the bat. It's, it's not going to be one that I'm going to go back to revisit anytime soon. But I didn't not enjoy it at the same time. I okay. found moments that I was chuckling. I found moments that were warm, that captured like I, I can see the nostalgia factor, you know, the memories of when you were a child and it, it taps nicely into it. I just feel that it kind of benefits, but also suffers from the vignette approach because it benefits when there's one little vignette that made me chuckle and worked. But then it suffers because there'll be another one that follows that you just go, ah, did we need this? Did we need a, did we need a, la- a lamp, which was like a, a sexy leg? There's elements that didn't work for me, but it felt like sketches. And when one sketch fails, another one picks it up. So I didn't not enjoy it. I just didn't enjoy it enough to mark it down as a Christmas favourite. And a lot of the little vignettes pretty much didn't really have to be set at Christmas. Uh, and that's a, a, they're the ones that worked, the ones that didn't need to be set at Christmas. The ongoing theme of him wanting to get that Christmas present is the Christmas link. It's that whole build up to Christmas and the chaos that ensues around the family, which I feel has been done better in other comedy films that came later. One of which we're going to do as a deep dive, I think, next week. But with this, it just didn't it didn't touch me in the way that it touches other people. I kind of enjoyed it, semi enjoyed it. And then was glad when it finished and just wrapped it up. I do need to say that the running joke of you shoot your eye out, that's one of the bits that made me laugh ridiculously, particularly when it gets to the Santa saying it while he's clutching onto the slide to stop himself going. And that's when it shows the strength of this film because Billingsley, his reaction and his facial expression on that scene was perfect. And that's part of the elements that works for the film. It's just the rest of the film didn't didn't capture my heart. I'd never heard of this film until until I say it was recommended to me, and then I, I watched it and I found it to be just wonderfully nostalgic. It also has got a, got a darker edge to it, and it's always humorous. It has become a perennial favorite in our house, and I think it's that that darker edge. It's not a schmaltzy Christmas story. This is the tribulations that a kid will go through, and especially in that build up to Christmas. There's the bully. Again, something I, I recognise. Or when you fight back, when there's a bully around you, I kind of recognise that as well. I just, I just grew to, to see myself in Ralphie. I, I was that kid. Uh, we used to go out as a family, pick the Christmas tree. As a family, we'd go late night Christmas shopping when the, the shops were open and the lights were on and the Christmas parades were on. This is uh, this is one of those which which feels personal and I find it a delight. I find it truly funny. I've now shared it with the family who, who love it as well. And, and it just gets me every time. I'll probably take a break from it this year. I, I can't say that I, I'll, I need to watch it every year. But when I do come back to it, it, it takes me back to a time and a place. And I, and I love it. It's an interesting film to look at when you consider other Bob Clark works. Because before this, he'd basically been known 
primarily for horrors and thrillers, right up until literally before this, when he gave us Porky's and Porky's 2, which couldn't be as far removed from the warmth of a Christmas story than anything ever could be. I mean, the Porky's films are ones that have considered for the deep dives at some point, but then I realized they're not going to stand the test of time at all. Yeah. That memory that I have of them when I was in my teens and they seemed like saucy, ribald comedies, it's not going to age well. So I don't want to go back to them. It's interesting to see that, you know, th- this film inspired shows like The Wonder Years. And again, The Wonder Years, loads of people I've loved for, but I could never connect with. And I can. Right. This is why I don't think I connect with. A Christmas story. Like I say, I can appreciate elements of it and the moments that amuse me, but I don't feel connected, even though the themes, like you've described, yeah, I can relate to the bullying. I can relate to, you know, that desire for getting that right Christmas presence. I can relate to the things that are shown on screen. It just all felt a bit twee at times. But when it worked, it really worked. And when it worked, it was primarily down to Billingsley being such a great young actor. Yeah, just, just sticking with Bob Clark, you're right, he did have a very odd career. I mean, he's a Canadian director, uh, responsible, for, as you said, horror, Black Christmas, which got remade a couple of years ago. Uh, you mentioned Porky's. He did one of the best Sherlock Holmes movies with Christopher Plummer as Holmes in Murder by Decree, which is just a, a fantastic Holmes movie and one of my one of my absolute favourites. But back to Christmas Story, as I said, it's it's much loved exactly for those reasons that it, it does make me nostalgic in, in many ways. And I, I do recognise myself in Ralphie. And you're right, Billingsley's wide-eyed. He's got a beautiful face that just emotes every scene. He's, he's just perfect. There, there was a sequel. There was a lot of trepidation before watching it because legacy sequels do have a tendency to be a little bit poor. But I gave it a go. And while it doesn't have the charisma it does have the love for those characters in a way that I, I I didn't expect. So it's set as Ralph is now an adult. He's a struggling writer. He goes back home for Christmas after the passing of his father. Um, so the film is dedicated to Darren McGavin. And after enough time, it, it does work. It's never going to be a classic, but neither is it a blight on the original as some sequels can be. Uh, so A Christmas Story will always be the perfect present for me. But for you, Andy, I think it's going to stay under the tree. Uh, It might might get um, repackaged and re-gifted to someone else at a later date. But at this point in time, it's gathering dust. (laughs) If you want to watch A Christmas Story, and I do recommend that you give it a try, make your own mind up, where can you find it? Um, It's available to watch for free on Prime Video at the moment, or you can rent it on any streaming service for about £3.50, or you can buy it if you really want to. Take your choice, take your chances. If you love the film already, it might be worth buying, so you can keep revisiting it in the best format possible. We'll be back next week with another festive deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So Andy, what have you got for us this week? So I'm going to start the ball rolling with a film that's on limited cinema release across the UK at the moment, and that's Eileen. Eileen! (coughs) Oh, look what the cat dragged in. Good afternoon, Eileen. How was your day, Dad? It was a day, just another day. My day was a doozy. It's one of those days you never forget. Listen up. This young lady is our new prison psychologist. She may be easy on the eyes, but I assure you, 
She is very smart. I'm Rebecca. I know. I don't think I caught your name. Oopsie. Nasty habit. That's why I like it. <coughs> I live a little differently than most people. They're probably scared of you. Prison is no place for a young lady. You got a big life ahead of you, I'm sure. I'm just kind of average, I think. You really think you're a normal person? Adapted from the novel by Otessa Moshve, Eileen focuses on a young woman played by Thomas and Mackenzie, who works in a Boston Young Offenders Institute in the 1960s. Timid in nature, she suffers emotional abuse at home and harbours dark thoughts of killing herself and her father. But when a new psychiatrist, Rebecca, played marvellously by Anne Hathaway, enters the institution, Eileen becomes obsessed with her. And as the pair gravitate around each other, their lives become intertwined. Elements of manipulation and desire start to come into play, and surely things are not going to end well for the pair. Eileen is a tale of obsession, and it's disturbing, it's playful, it's twisted, and it contains a shock reveal moment that made me sit almost bolt upright in my seat, as it's the final act swings into a very different direction. Mackenzie, despite clearly struggling with the Boston accent, manages to charm and engage in the early moments, letting you as an audience member get under her skin and into her sheltered and sometimes disturbing world. When Hathaway's Rebecca steps on screen, packed with absolute star glamour, she steals the moments in a beneficial way, in a role that she was clearly born to play. The chemistry between the pair sizzles on screen, and the way in which their natures subtly change each other's through their time together is perfectly presented. Around the central pair, the support cast lend well to their part, especially Shea Wiggum as Eileen's father, who plays a broken man, lashing out at those closest to him rather than accepting his own failures in such a way that you kind of love him and hate him at the same time. The period setting is played upon within the style of the film. It looks like a 60s made thriller. A very rich cinematography is being used, which echoes the peak of Hitchcock's own career, whilst also tapping into a film noir core and sometimes comedic style. The music score similarly feels of the past, complemented by a title card and closing credits with a typeface that echoes decades of yesteryear. This is a modern film that is inspired by and plays into the styles and themes of past films in a meticulous and delicious way. Eileen is a tightly woven treat of a film, and whilst the general manner in which it plays is sometimes predictable, there will still be moments that will catch you unaware. So that's Eileen. What else have you got? So the next film, you have to rent this at the moment. It will inevitably land on one of the streaming services for free, but I wasn't going to wait to watch Wrath of Becky, the sequel to the marvellous film that's on Netflix, Becky. I, I loved Becky. I thought Becky was great fun. Am I going to enjoy the sequel? It's been two years since four neo-Nazis invaded my family's lake house and murdered my father. <laughs> I'm 16 now. I've run away from three foster homes. Diego, come. This is Elena Khan. I've lived with her for the past year. We go now to a developing story. They call themselves the Noblemen. And they may be coming here to Fillmore. Whether or not the noblemen decide to make an appearance at the town hall on Wednesday, only time will tell. So are you going to see this or are you just going to stand there? Right this way. Finally. Oh! 
she did that on purpose. Saving our country and stopping the treason one vengeful mission at a time. To freedom. 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 Who is it? It's Becky. It's been three years since Becky's encounter with neo-Nazis that resulted in the death of her family. And she's been left bouncing through the care system before escaping and going rogue, winding up settling with a matronly woman named Alina, whilst honing her own survival skills and trap-making abilities. Looking like she might finally be able to relax again, things take a turn for the worse when members of an extremist group named the Noble Men, clearly a riff on the Proud Boys, let's be honest, this isn't a film franchise that's subtle about the statements that it's making on the politics. They come to town for a planned rally and invade Becky's new home, sparking another burst of bloody revenge from the teen as she seeks retribution once more. This is pretty much more of the same, and at 83 minutes long, it doesn't waste any time getting to the meat of what audiences are back for. More Becky mayhem. What worked in the first film works again here. In particular, Lulu Wilson in the lead plays dark and broken, but with enough humanity bubbling beneath to make you really care for her. Last time, she was up against racism and Nazis. This time, she's up against incels and maggers. And the leader of the Noblemen faction this time is played by another star who's generally known for comedy. After Kevin James showed so much menace, surprisingly, in the first film, this film chooses to put Sean William Scott in charge of the adversaries, and he graces the screen with surprising menace every moment that he's on frame. This idea of taking comedians and having them play sinister works marvellously, and it certainly aids the unnerving aspect of the film as a result. The killings are creative once more, bloody, brutal, and darkly, deliciously hilarious at times. And the story also builds on the mystery of the key that Becky obtained in the first film, before teasing a slightly different direction for the third film, which, good news, is in production. If you're a fan of the first film, you are certainly going to enjoy this second offering. These are traditional sort of Z movies. Lots and lots of claret, lots and lots of grisly deaths. They're the kind of thing that used to end up uh, at the bottom of a bottom shelf of a, a video Ooh. store. But I thought it was done with some charm. I thought it was really well shot. I thought the character of Becky was very interesting, not necessarily the hero of the story, but I, I, I really had a good time with it. So I'm looking forward to seeing this one. I'm glad it's not a, not a disappointment. The actress who plays Becky, Lulu Wilson, is marvellous. And in this in this second film in particular, when you get around to watching it, if you don't think along the same lines as me that if they're going to reboot Buffy the Vampire Slayer, then they need to cast Lulu Wilson as Buffy, yet you've not been paying attention. She embodies a Buffy kind of approach. Marvellous. Well worth checking out. And that leads us finally to... And the last film, I said that I was going to avoid it. I said I wouldn't watch it because it had no interest in me. But you but did. No, I did. And I, I think it's just to see whether Eddie Murphy's still got some charm for family films. And that was Candy Cane Lane. I need your breakfast amount of reindeer. What? Why are you like this? Thank you so much, baby. Dad, look. Wow. Merry Christmas. Oh, hey. What's Christmas without a little terror? Check that little 
wish. What's your Christmas wish? I just want it to be the best Christmas ever. Oh, ignore all the fine print. Honestly, it's like you're signing your life away. This is crazy. Hold up, that was your wish? Not like, I don't know, world peace? In hunger? And homelessness? Stop climate change? Save the polar bears? New Drake album? Oh, I love Drake. Point taken. Ooh, look at you, high stuff, looking like a tall drink of water. I'm enchanted. Eddie Murphy takes the lead in this festive family offering that sees him play Chris Carver, a resident on the street Candy Cane Lane, where each year neighbours compete to have the best decorated home. Whilst other neighbours, especially Ken Marino's Bruce, buy tacky inflatable pieces to litter, I mean decorate their gardens with, Chris hand carves traditional pieces based on icons of the season. However, looking for something special for the latest year, he stumbles upon a pop-up shop with some unique festive supplies, and pretty soon he ends up with an elaborate 12 days of Christmas tower. But the next morning, he awakens to discover it's mysteriously in ruins. The decoration has lost all the display items from it, and he finds that he was tricked by the elf that runs the store, Pepper, played by Gillian Bell, and he must retrieve the gold rings or be cursed to become a festive decoration himself. This is every bit as generic and bland as you'd come to expect from a mishmash of festive ideas. And the film does have a handful of almost chuckle-worthy moments, but they're scattered within an overlong, overbloated mess of a film that keeps taking away from the core characters and family aspect in order to shoehorn in annoying cutaways to the daytime news team for what I can only assume is supposed to be laughs. The result is a film that drags out for two hours, which took far too long to actually kickstart the core concept in the first place. To be fair to it though, Murphy does deliver his typical family-friendly persona with ease, and it shows that he's still got enough presence on screen to get away with these kind of films. In addition, the idea of the 12 days of Christmas coming to life and causing chaos does start off well, but it never really delves into the idea enough or has enough fun with the chaos that could have ensued. Gillian Bell's a highlight. Her typically grumpy presence as a mean-spirited elf raised a few chuckles for me. And Nick Offerman is always fun to see pop up, even if it's only fleetingly. But the film is definitely too long, and it feels bloated from all the mix of ideas that are mashed together. But still, if you want basic festive offerings for the family, safe to say it should tick the boxes during this time of year when everybody seems to accept lower standards of taste when it comes to either films or music. Just expect to realise, once it gets to the new year, how bad the film actually was. A film like that should be 90 minutes. I feel that it, it might have been a better film had they chopped it down. So that's this week's releases. Wild Horses aren't really going to drag me to Candy Cane Lane. It sounds over long, and I think that kind of movie just needs to be about 90 minutes, but two hours. A film like that outstays its welcome. Yes. But that's this week's releases, what's coming up next week. And yes, we know we are ready for a touch of Wonka. Yeah, cinemas, it's all about Wonka this week. But that's not the only thing landing at the big screen this week because Chicken really? Run, Dawn of the Nugget also lands. And also a film that I mentioned that the trailer intrigued me, Please Don't Destroy the Treasure of Foggy Mountain also lands this week. And for the really young'uns, there's an animated movie called The Inseparables. So there's a bit of a bit of a full house 
for um, the early December runs this week, but it is Wonka. Wonka's top of the list. Now TV and Sky. Um, I'm seeing some very good reviews of this, so I will bring this to the show next week. May, December lands on Now TV and Sky. Transformers Rise of the Beast lands on there this week, and The Machine. Over on Netflix, Leave the World Behind and Blood Vessel are your two new releases. Over on Amazon, it's going festive crazy with Your Christmas or Mine 2, World's First Christmas, Dealing with Christmas, Dating Santa, and, importantly, Merry Little Batman. Okay. (laughs) And on Disney+, Plus, mark this down on your calendar. I raved about this over the summer. Theatre Camp lands on Disney+, Plus this week. Well worth watching. And Diary of a Wimpy Kid Christmas Cabin Fever also lands animated Christmas outing for the Diary of the Wimpy Kid series. And over on Paramount Plus, again, Transformers Rise of the Beast, because it's a Paramount movie, so they're getting as well. And Baby Shark's big movie for those who have really, really, really young kids and want to have their minds absolutely destroyed by inanity. (laughs) Why would you do that to somebody? Quite a busy week. It is a busy week. And I know Wonka's top of the list for you and I. Uh, hopefully we'll both get to see it and talk about it next week. And that basically brings us to the close for this week. Uh, thank you as ever for joining us. But before we go, we'll tell you about our neat things. Stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we've loved. Whether we've uh, read it, seen it, ate it, we'll tell you how neat it is. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? My neat thing for this week is Alan Partridge, Big Beacon which is his new book. Again, another evolution. Or should I say devolution? Because this is a character that seems to be coming worse and worse in a funny way. Every new iteration that we get of it. And it's a dual narrative. As Alan goes into explaining the whole concept of a dual narrative in the introduction thing, describing how in films, when they want to tell a story of someone from when they were a child to when they were an adult, they realise no one wants to see a little shit for an hour on screen before it gets to the good stuff. So they they dual narrative and they jump backwards and forwards in time. And that's what he does in this book. And he describes it saying, you know, a dual narrative, dual meaning two, a narrative meaning story or narrative because it's Alan Partridge. And at that point, <laughs> I'm laughing on the bus listening to the audio book of this because if you are as much a fan of Alan Partridge as I am, you will love his latest book offering. And I advise everyone, ignore the printed version, get the audio book because you can't beat having Alan talking to you as Alan Partridge. It's telling the the, the missing part of his story before presenting this time, uh, the more recent BBC series, and also picking up the events after the final episode of that, as he's now got this ambition to build a lighthouse which is not an analogy for him trying to put his career back together, but it is. Uh, It's packed with all the Alan Partridge-isms that you come to expect with his name-dropping of celebrities, his hatred of Noel Edmonds, channeling all the way through, and is explaining something and then saying, this isn't what I think, this is just what I've heard, I don't know who from, which is clearly what he thinks. It's brilliant. Absolutely hilarious. I'm sat on the bus to and from work every day, not caring that people are looking at me as though I'm a madman as I'm chuckling away to myself. It's absolutely brilliant. Big Beacon, Alan Partridge. Get on it right now. You know what? I'm owed a book from uh, Audible, and I've been wondering what to have. I've just finished a, a Stephen King one. So, yes, I might put that high onto my list. 
Uh, my neat thing, I've just finished watching this eight-part series that landed on Netflix a few weeks ago. Uh, and I'm not a binger, so I like to try and watch things over uh, a series of weeks because I think that's the best way to watch TV, um, certainly for me anyway. And that is Bodies, based on a graphic novel by two old friends, which I, I didn't realise going into it. Cy Spencer, uh, a Sheffield writer who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, and Dean Ormston, who I went to New York with the very first time when we were kids and had a fantastic time and went on to become uh, an amazing illustrator, especially his work on Black Hammer. Anyway, uh, Bodies was an adaptation of the Vertigo series for DC. And if you'd have asked me after episode two, would it have made a neat thing? I would have probably said no, but I did that thing. I stuck with it and it became more and more intriguing and well worth getting to the end. It basically is a crime science fiction story in which four detectives, four different timelines, each find the same body. And they basically have to save Britain's future by solving the murder that alters the course of history. Uh, and it really does one of those, one of the series that actually pays off. So if you started on it, you didn't enjoy it, stick with it because after episode three, so when it moves up a gear, gets a bit timey-wimey, but in a good way, and is well worth investing eight hours of your time with. Stars Shearer has as the future detective DC Maplewood, Jacob Fortune Lloyd as DC Whitman from the 1940s, Kyle Stoller as D.I. Hillinghead from the 1900s, and Amarka Akofa as D.S. Hassan from present day, and throw into that Stephen Graham as the villain who is just perfect and has some of the best teeth working in film today because clearly they weren't his own but they were fantastic uh if you like your science fiction and you like your crime thriller it's a perfect meld and it's also a comic book adaptation and that folks that's us done andy yep that's it another week out the way i've got a week off from work starting from this coming friday uh, which I'm pretty much going to need looking at all the list of films that are coming out this week. But I might add bodies onto the list to work through over that week, play a little catch up. I'm not planning to do anything except we are, me and my mate are going to see Ocean Colour Scene at the Octagon. Okay. Yeah, there's a band from my past. Enjoy. I've been re listening to some Ocean Colour Scene stuff over the past few weeks and realizing how much I loved them back in the day. So I'm quite looking forward to this gig. This will be fun. So, Andy, I'm going to triple dog dare you and see you next week. Contributors, stick around. Stick around. <laughs> there you go. I managed to drop it in for you. It's, it's now a Pavlovian response now. It's, it's been done so many times that I'm stuck doing it anytime someone says stick around. <laughs> Can I get a treat now? Do I get a treat? Do I get a treat? Do I get a treat? <laughs> yeah, you, you get to finish the pod. Yay! <laughs> Pretty much guessing the same for you, Andy. Yes. So that helps focus our question. On focus on question. Mm, question you will focus. Right to... Yes. Yeah. That <laughs> did sound like Yoda speak, didn't it? <laughs> Do recommend that you give it a try. Make your own mind up. Where can you find it? That's a very good question that I've not researched. Oh my god, this is a two-sided screwdriver. I've just been playing with my screwdriver and just took it apart. It's like, oh my god, it's irreversible. You got a flat top and you've got a Phillips. I'd never knew that I've had this screwdriver for about seven years and I didn't know it's reversible. <laughs>